he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We're glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. In a moment, I'm going to share from you from 2 Peter. We have just finished a sermon series looking at the prophets in the Old Testament, primarily a handful of the minor prophets, seeing indeed their word, their encouragement, what they wanted to say to the people of God that still had bearing on who we are today. And I found myself thinking after that that series that it would be good perhaps to hear a prophetic word from the New Testament, one that in particular has been seen as as a word about our future or about what might happen. And and oftentimes that's how we've always kind of addressed the prophets too. These guys must be talking about some distant future. But I think what we found over these weeks is the words of the minor prophets are words for us precisely where we are. That we found the messages in them, messages such as God's grace is greater than His judgment. That His grace might be shared with those whom we least expect it or whom we think least deserve it. That God's judgment is actually reserved for those who return back to oppressive practices, the very practice God wants to deliver His people from. And that God's Word serves as a promise for those who are in the worst way because of those kinds of things. And so we found over the last few weeks that God continued to lift up and promise and show His grace as He continues to do in our life. And as we get ready to read today from 2 Peter chapter 3, I wonder if we could read it with the same eye towards what hope is God looking to share for us today and how in understanding what, what it was like then might we hear that good news for today. So I want to read for you today from 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in them. I'm trying to arouse your sincere intention by reminding you that you should remember the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts and saying, well, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And they deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth was formed out of water, and by means of water through which the world of that time was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the godless. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements dissolved with fire. And the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. And since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with His promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, 
where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Speaking of this, as he does in all of his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you are forewarned, beware that you are not carried away with the error of the lawless and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, this passage... We are at the very end of the letter in the first couple chapters. He is talking to the church and he's saying, there are people coming up to you and they are spreading a false message. They are serving as false prophets. They're saying, hey, we have an idea of what God wants and what God desires, but really, um, why not continue or go back to some of the other ways? Surely there's a God, but like, is he really going to intervene with some of the things that we want to do or the things that we care about? It's kind of the message of the false prophets. And he mentions that in the first couple chapters. And so when he gets to this chapter and he says, don't forget the words spoken by the holy prophets. Not, don't listen to the false ones. He says, I want you to be careful about those. Uh, he, he's saying to them, the prophets called them to holiness, called them with how to live among one another, to care for each other, and don't return to the old ways of life. In fact, if we remember some of the words of the minor prophets, that was some of their warnings as well. There were warnings against Edom for going back, warnings against Nineveh for going back to their oppressive practices. Even when we talked about Jonah, he started complaining about the Ninevites, and he was going back to basically running away from wanting to share the grace of God. Uh, when God says, and wait, you care more about that plant that wither than, than the, than the uh, Assyrians. Uh, Hosea warns the Israelites, you know, if he can turn moments of ungrace into grace, if he can turn moments of, you're not one of me, you're not one of my followers too, yes, you are one of my followers, don't go back to that way of life. And so Peter is saying to the church, there are people who are going to say to you, the world is the same as it ever was, or the world's falling apart anyway. What does it matter what we do? And he says, and Peter is saying to, to them, don't listen to the world that suggests that God is not absolutely interested in how you live your life and what you do. There are, in particular, two groups of people during this time who have a whole lot of influence to the Greek-speaking church. And the Greek-speaking church, this letter written in that language, the church that is spreading out past the promised land and going into the world finds themselves in this world. But there's two major groups that are kind of uh, exist at this time. They're mentioned in the book of Acts when Paul goes to Athens. They're the Epicureans and the Stoics. And their mindset is basically this. The Epicureans are, the world is always as it ever has been and ever will be, and it is the same. And everything can uh, uh, be traced back to just uh, uh, its essential building blocks, and and the world is just continuing on. Nothing changes. And their mindset would be something like, um, if God really cares about something then why wouldn't he stop something that's wrong? Or if God really cares about something, then why doesn't he stop me from doing something's wrong? You know, that whole like, if, if this is not right, may God strike me dead kind of language. And so this is their thought. 
Uh, the Stoics, on the other hand, kind of think their thought of the world is, well, the world isn't just continuing on and continuing on and continuing on. It goes through cycles. It goes through phases. Our present world is, is going through a phase, and sooner or later it'll get destroyed, and then it'll get renewed, and, but then it, it'll get destroyed back to its basic elements, and then it'll get renewed. And it's this cycle. And the only thing for a Stoic is, uh, we, the only thing that doesn't kind of go in that destructive si- cycle is our soul. And so, you know, we just have to transcend and be greater than this perishable body and, and not succumb to any of the, the whims or the struggles of this body and be greater than that. And that's why a Stoic, to this day, is seen as somebody who doesn't let anything phase them. And so, uh, but their idea is the world is going to go through cycles of destruction. And so you have these kind of two major thoughts. And when the Christians come and start talking about what God, how God wants them to live, their immediate thought is going to be, okay, if God actually has a vested interest in this, that are wrong in this world shouldn't continue as they are. Or if God has a vested interest in this, how is he going to act in the face of a, of a future where there might be destruction in the whole cycle of the world? And I think Peter, in many ways is addressing and speaking into those various false prophets speaking to the church. Those two groups that would argue back and forth. Paul is addressing them and saying, hey, even it seems like things are continuing on. The same as it ever was since the beginning of creation, he says in verse 4. He says what they are ignoring is this, that creation was made by God. And so even if we say this world as it is today doesn't seem to be a whole lot better than the way it was a long time ago, he says this, but yet God is the creator of this world and no matter how you break down the way this world is today, I want you to know it is God who created it. It is God who said this is the way the world is. And so Paul addresses than the Stoics of the world who are saying, well, you know, I, I think, you know, this world is just something we need to escape before it's destroyed and it goes into its next cycle. He says, yeah, there might be destruction, but all destruction has a purpose. It's not random. It's not inevitable. It's not just a part of the cycle of the way things are. It has a purpose. And according to verse 7, the purpose is for the judgment and the destruction of the godless. And which is a way of saying it's not haphazard, it's not just to destroy everything that God's created, because what we remember from the story of God's creation is God says it's good. And indeed, his creation of humankind is it's very good. He loves what he has made, but what he wants to destroy or get rid of or purge or refine, to use other fire language, he wants to remove the sin and the destruction that exists in our world. And so he says to those of us who say, but really things are still the same. He says to those who say, but how long do I have to wait to see God act? He says, a thousand years are like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. He says, sometimes it seems like it's taking a whole lot longer than we would anticipate. It seems like, you know, God is really slow to move today, what's happening, what's on the horizon, that we can only imagine kind of the way the world is now in our lifetime. And I think Paul here is answering the false prophets who think, if the world keeps going as it is, obviously there can't be a God, or there can't be a God who's, answer, who's interested. And he's saying, 
from a different perspective, we might just see our God knows and understands far more than we can possibly imagine. And that in His own timing, that we might come to see that our God is still true to His promise. And that there is still a day in which He says, I will restore this world and it will be removed uh, and the evil and the sin that exists will be removed. And I think we are often tempted to think in the same way. To think that, okay, God, it's been a while. It's been quiet. Where are you today? Where are you right now? I've been praying for a while. Or, or I don't know if, if I can continue on or if I, if I can still face what I'm facing today. And to that, the words of Peter are words that God has not forgotten His promise. God is still true to His people. In fact, he says, God is patient with us. Doesn't want anyone to perish. And indeed, is hoping and waiting that more will come into the fold and believe in Jesus Christ. He says that He doesn't want anyone to perish. And, that the, the, and I can't help but think, as I was reading this, of the illustration that Jesus gave when the people asked Jesus, well, how long, Jesus, if, you're gonna, if God's going to redeem the world, if He's going to save us, how much longer? Why doesn't He come right now? And, and Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable about a gardener, and He's got His garden, and there are weeds in that garden. And He says, if, if the Lord comes now or sends the angel of the harvest now to harvest, He says, in the removal of the weeds, before everything else has taken root, all the good harvest will be taken up with it. I have a garden in the back of our, our house. We have two like kind of big box gardens there, and the weeds have found their way in. We've had this for about uh, uh, three years. This is our third summer of, of gardening at the Parsonage. And the first year was great. It was glorious. I didn't have to do any weeding. The second year, last summer, I had to do quite a bit more. This year, it's been raining so much, it's like the weeds have taken over. <laughs> and what I learned as, uh, just, just last week as I was pulling some out, I'm pulling them out, and I'm like, I don't even know what I'm pulling up anymore. <laughs> and I'm taking up all kinds of things. This, this, what Peter says in this story is the Lord is being patient because He wants to see our faith come to fruition in the midst of what happens, but know that God is with us. The day of the Lord, he says, comes like a thief. We don't know, but in it, everything gets dissolved, returned back to its elements. And that's a weird way of putting it, but that's the way the Stoics thought. All the elements of the world will be destroyed until it's recreated and comes back. It was just a part of their philosophy. And Peter, I think, kind of borrows from this to say, our Lord does so with a redemptive purpose. The new heavens and a new earth won't look the same as they do here and today. In fact, what he says is righteousness will be at home in verse 13. We wait for the new heavens. We wait for the new earth where righteousness is at home. The biggest distinction is we will be right with the Lord and we will find ourselves in accordance with His desire and His purposes and indeed finding that everything that is not in accord with His purposes is removed, is rooted out of this world. The core elements of what God intended with His creation will be what, is, what, what remains. There will be the removal of the lust for power, the removal for the destruction of others. This is the hope for the world. 
There's a song that we sing sometimes that I, I want to share a little bit of the words with. It's, um, it's the modern kind of reworking of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, my chains are gone. We sing that song sometimes here in worship here. And that song goes, sharing uh, in the verses, goes with, first off, sharing the idea and hope of God's redemption for us and our salvation. And then, amazing grace, my chains are gone. I've been set free, uh, goes the chorus. And then it also talks about God being a place of refuge and a place of security in the midst of a world gone wrong. And then we're singing, amazing grace, my chains are gone. I've been set free. And then the last verse says, This most curious line, the world shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Remember that line? That line, I believe, takes from and borrows specifically from 2 Peter. This idea that the world as we know it dissolves, this world as we know it just kind of uh, gets reshaped. And every time I sing that song, I find myself thinking on the one hand, what's happening here? What is this artist trying to say? Is it just the destruction of the world and that's it? But the whole point of that song, of course, is remembering that God's grace is now and God's grace is here and God's grace is for us. And that's the point of what Peter is saying to a church who's hearing false prophets saying, God's not answering, God's not here. Evil's just going to keep raining on. He says, no, this is going to get taken care of. And so whenever I sing that song, that song that is about grace, amazing grace, not about judgment, not about uh, God's anger, not about God's wrath, it's a song about God's amazing grace. When I sing that song in those lines, I find myself singing it in, in the entire metaphor of grace overcoming sin. And whenever I sing that, I can't help but think, it doesn't matter what happens to this world, how, what, what might happen, how I might see it looks like sin is reigning. God will intervene and act even in the worst that this world can do. And, may, and God's grace can enter into a world that is dissolving and falling apart and speak even into that world for us. The destruction of a world as we know it and recreated anew with a new heaven and a new earth is a metaphor for being free from sin, from being free from our addiction to things that have nothing to do with God, being free from the lust for power, being free for uh, uh, the, the kind of way of life that puts myself above God and above others. It's a metaphor for what God wants to do in the life of those around us. There was a, there's a popular metaphor for me as a kid that I heard from evangelists, and I still like it. I still absolutely agree with it. Uh, the, the evangelists would come to the church, and they talk about what God wanted to do in our life and how God wanted to have first place in our life. And uh, he wanted to just reign in our life. And the evangelists would say, in order for God to have complete control to reign in your life, You need to pick up your cross. You need to follow Jesus. And picking up your cross means dying to self. And the phrase was, you need to die to yourself in order to live for God. Which is, less of me, more of God would be the phrases. That if you can die to yourself, that is, wherever my will 
gets above God's will, I say, no, that gets crucified with Jesus. Wherever my will gets above God's call to love my neighbor, no, that gets crucified with Jesus Christ. Die to self so I could live for God. So much so that uh, today, when I talk with uh, other pastors or people who've been in the church for a while, and, and I've heard that phrase used just, just, just as um, casually as any other phrase, oh, I need to die to self, or we need to die to self more in order to be the people God wants us to be. It doesn't come with the illustrations of carrying a cross. It no longer comes with the illustrations of, of, of Jesus on the cross. Like It's just kind of embedded in the metaphor. Die to self. But we know if we hear that phrase in the church, we know it's a metaphor. We know it carries meaning. I mean, because to be taken literally (laughs) would mean that someone's asking you to drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid. So, like, this is not, uh, but we know it's a metaphor. It means we are placing God primary above ourselves, above anything else that we might desire. There's a literal meaning and there's a metaphorical meaning. And I can't help but think that's the same way to read Peter here in chapter 3. The restoration of the world and the removal of the world as we know it with all of its sin is a way of talking about God's plan of liberation from the fall. A way of restoring the very basic foundations of this world to the way in which God had always wanted it to be. Whatever that looks like, it will, be as ref- it will be as fiery as a refining forge to bring it back to the basic elements that God has always wanted our world to be about. And so Peter says in verse 14, while we wait for this day, while we wait for this time, don't give up. Don't give up as if, oh, life is just going to continue on as the way it is. Or that God is ignoring where we are or the plight that comes our way. Don't panic about the end as some try to warn us to do with passages even like this. But recognize that Peter is saying to us, evil and sin doesn't get the last word in our world or in our life. And so when he says, regard the patience of God as salvation, we recognize quickly that the consequences of the fall do indeed exist in our life. And oftentimes there is struggle in saying, okay, God, I believe, but how do I overcome the past? How do I overcome the consequences? How do I overcome the bad habits that have come along the way? How do I overcome even the mortality that that seems to strike at us in the most surprising and worst of ways when it seems like death is just barely being held at bay? Can we come to realize, as Peter says today, God has a plan and a purpose And He is indeed drawing us to Him. God is being patient and salvation is at hand. We wait and we grow in the grace of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ because we realize how we live matters. That God's calling upon our life matters. That God is always in the business of recreating. And He is recreating today as well. Whenever we find a life that has changed, a life that says, okay, I know where God has called me out of and what He wants me to be. Whenever we see renewed hope in the face of tragedy, when someone can yet say, but I believe God can turn this into a purpose and God has a plan. 
When we see that someone is being saved from sin, saying, hey, I used to have this issue, or I used to uh, be a different kind of person, but God has turned me around. We see that God is in the business of recreating today and refining in the lives of each and every one of us today. And there's a future element as well. That the, when it seems indeed that the world is dissolving away, to see that for God... There is always a purpose and a plan behind it all. And his ultimate goal is to gather his family, his sheep, his children together in loving arms to say, I have grace for you. And the talk of destruction here is a way of saying, I am rooting out I'm finding the cancer of this world. I am removing it and getting rid of it. What I present to you today is going to be something new and amazing and eternal that changes who we are and how we get to live for all eternity. It is a promise of grace in the face of whatever this world brings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today asking for your grace, asking for your help. Heavenly Father, I don't think we have to imagine very hard or look around very much to see what looks like a trajectory of the world that has fallen apart or a trajectory of the world that is just the same as it ever was and we say, where, where, where do we get hope in all of this? But Heavenly Father, I believe that by your Spirit, you can open up our eyes and see that you have a plan behind all of this. That even in the midst of sometimes things that just shake us to our core, we can see that you have been faithful through that. And Heavenly Father, it is my hope and my prayer that you would develop in us a faith and a hope that recognizes that you are with us that you are guiding us through it all and that there is always something more in store than what this world has orchestrated. Thank you again for the promise of working in our life, for the holiness that you bring, for the refining work you will do in each and every one of us. May we see in that indeed a hope and glimpse of the refining work that will lead indeed to a peaceful and glorious eternity. But Lord, help us to be faithful today to that hope that we would not succumb to the false prophets who tell us, just go back to the way things were. Let us live each day faithful to you. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve Him today.